BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. The legends are true. Overwhelming power. The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Donald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. Welcome to episode 130 of the Highly Relevant Podcast, the Latinx show where I interview the people and discuss the moments that are shaping our American and Latino pop culture. I have a great show for you guys this week, and it's my two guests. First, I got Colombian actress Natalia Reyes, who is the lead of the new Terminator Dark Fate sequel. Remember, all those other Terminator movies? Well, forget them. This is the one right after Judgment Day. And this Latina Colombian who now lives in Cartagena is the star of this film. I got a chance to talk to her. And it's interesting. She told me that she thought she was auditioning for the maid's role in this movie. And of course, little did she know she was going to become the lead star of an iconic franchise now. Then I talked to Columbia University professor, author, and Latinx authority, Ed Morales, It's about his new book, Latinx, The New Force in American Politics and Culture, and we discuss why America has embraced this new Latinx boom. But before I talk to Natalia and Ed, it's time I give you my weekly pop culture news recap in a segment I like to call Jacked In. Let's begin with the top movie news of the week. Oscar Isaac will join the cast of the new revenge thriller, The Card Counter. Rapper Cardi B is joining the cast of Fast and Furious 9. Latinx actress Isabel Monaire has changed her name to Isabella Merced. And Mexican actress Ana de la Reguera will star in the next Purge sequel. In TV news, there's a Superman and Lois reboot happening at the CW. Freddie Prince Jr. will play the ex-husband on the Punky Brewster reboot on NBC's new streaming service, Peacock. Lin-Manuel Miranda and Rosario Dawson are promoting travel to Puerto Rico. And Latino executive Armando Nunez will serve as chairman, global distribution, and chief content licensing officer at the new Viacom CBS. Switching over to music, Selena Gomez will perform at this year's American Music Awards. David Bisbal to appear on the Spanish-language Frozen 2 soundtrack. Brazilian singer Anita has made the new Charlie's Angels soundtrack. And Ricky Martin, Roselin Sanchez, and Paz Vega to host this year's Latin Grammys on November 14th on Univision. And in tech and social media news, Apple is laying the groundwork for a full hardware and software monthly subscription plan. Sony shutters PlayStation View. Netflix plans to test varying play speeds on their streaming service. Instagram banned some selfie filters over mental health concerns, and comic artist and author Juan Doe dropped issue number three of his new techno-hard graphic novel, Bad Reception. There's a machine out there, and it wants to kill me. Natalia Reyes, welcome to the Highly Relevant Podcast. Thank you. So, Natalia, um, I'm Colombian myself. My mom and dad were born in Barranquilla. Uh, soy costeño. Oh, my 
¿Tú vives en Cartagena? Vivo en Cartagena, nací en Bogotá. Ok. Soy Rola. Rolita. Pero vivo en Cartagena hace mucho tiempo y amo Cartagena y bueno, es como mi hogar. Explain to me exactly how you went from Bogotá to Cartagena. I, well, I was born in Bogotá and Bogotá is a great, beautiful, big city. It's a little bit chaotic and, you know, it's full of a little bit of traffic jams and it's, we have no seasons in Colombia for those who doesn't know. Uh, <laughs> and, and, and Bogotá is a cold city and, you know, I'm used to it, but then, you know, like my husband, he's from Spain. We, well, he loves sailing and he loves being by the ocean and having just like a, uh, better quality life. And he was like, I really want to go to Cartagena. Like, well, you know, I have nothing to do in Cartagena as an actress. It's really hard to work, you know, as an actress there. Yeah, I know. And, but I was like, you know, let's go, let's try. And I loved it. And you know, I we we now have this little beach hotel on in on the island of Tierra Bomba. It's in front of Cartagena. So we we did the hotel, and I just loved that. You know, being there, having it's, it's like a little zoo we have. We just have so many animals there. Uh, from the island, and I love it. I just, you know, I became a costeña myself. <laughs> awesome. And yes, and I love Corda, and I love the story. I love the people, the food. And now it's really hard for me to go back to the world. Like I, I said, know. Like, yeah, cool. <laughs> yeah. Well, Natalia, first of all, congratulations. This is Terminator Dark Fate is your American debut film. And one of the things yeah. as a Latino or Latinx film critic here in the United States What stood out to me more than anything else was the fact that if you had asked James Cameron to do a Latinx Terminator movie, this is what it would look like. To me, this is a Latinx film. It just happens to be a Terminator film, which is, it, it rips my brain apart because this is something you don't see quite often. This is uncommon. It's not, if you look at the statistics and the studies of how many Hispanic actors are out of work or unemployed. The fact that there's barely, outside of the Mexican directors, there's barely, barely any um, Hispanic voices in the directing chair, as cinematographers, and especially as actors. Because we have actors in Hollywood. We just don't have lead actors in Hollywood. And I've spoken yeah. to Robert Rodriguez, who works closely with James Cameron, about is it the responsibility of Hispanic directors to create Hispanic movie stars because who is our Hispanic Latinx movie star? We don't really have one. And the question is why? So to see you here, and I'll be honest with you, I understand Linda Hamilton is here. I understand Mackenzie Davis is here. But there was a moment in the movie where you were talking to Arnold, Linda, and Mackenzie, and you were the lead star. The movie went through you. So the way I see it, you are the lead of Terminator Dark Fate. You are the movie star we've been looking for. I could be incorrect in that, but that's the way it looked to me optically. I wanted to kind of get your frame of mind of, A, how do you kind of wrap your head around the fact that your first American debut Hollywood film is at this stage and at this level? Was it easy for you to wrap your head around that? Or did you go through like a nervous breakdown before you hit the stage? <laughs> All of them. Um, I think, well, that's a great analysis you just did. Um, but it is 
absolutely right. I think um, there's this recent study about like Latino representation in Hollywood and the entertainment industry, and it was like two percent. You know, mm-hmm. the presentation of Latinx characters in Hollywood movies or in the entertainment industry in general is like 2%. But Latin Latinx community is, I think, consuming and actually going to the movies and paying um, 30, 33% of the box offices, you know, uh, paid by Latinos. So, you know, it makes no sense that we're actually going to the movies um, and getting to see these stories, but we are not feeling represented there. And when we do have a presentation of that 2%, it is a representation of characters that are just like you said, you know, like they're all drug dealers or prostitutes or uh, illegal immigrants or, you know, like it has always something related to um, something illegal or, you know, like not great. So we don't even feel well represented with that small representation. Um, so, yeah, I mean, this was actually shocking for me. I, I, I was saying this when we were at the this latitude um, in event in, in San Diego that I was like, when I got this, uh, when they told me, like, can you just self send this tape to a big Hollywood movie? I didn't know which movie it was and I didn't know how important the character was. You had I, no idea? No. They they all keep like they keep it really secret. Mm-hmm. Like the whole information is great. They just don't they give you like a generic scene so you audition and they don't give much information about the project and and they were like, you know, I'm a Latina, I'm, you know, auditioning for this big Hollywood movie and for sure I'm going to be made number fourteen. And, you know, it's gonna be a small <laughs> Is that what you or, is that what you thought? Absolutely what I thought. And when and you know, it's also in our minds. So that's what is really crazy about it you know like we are we also have that in our minds and that's how deep it is that thought you know can you talk a little bit more um, about that if you don't mind because i think it's very key for a lot of hispanics who feel like second class citizens and sometimes we yeah look we don't we some like we don't think we deserve it you know like we are not uh, able or we are not capable or we are not like it was like yeah you know like I've been acting for a while I I, I feel confident as an actress I love what I do I think you know I've, pre- I've prepared myself enough to you know be able to perform or to uh, play any character but it's like ah, that doesn't happen it's not in my mind like you're not going to be a, um, a Hollywood star you're not going to be the main role in a Hollywood movie that doesn't happen that's it so, so you know that that was in my mind, and I'm like, I'm sure it's gonna be like the mate, or I'm going to die in the second scene because that's what Latinos do in films. You know, we just die. We're just or used we to it. We're conditioned. Or we yeah, die. yeah. So we're kind of conditioned to that. But um, then when I actually, you know, like I I came to LA, I went to this this callback. I I did it with Linda Hamilton. I was like, you know, Linda Hamilton is auditioning with the mate, so she needs to be an important mate. <laughs> You know, like that's like the main, main, like you were trying to rationalize what was going on, right? <laughs> yeah, like that doesn't really make sense. And then when I finally got to read the script, you know, I was like, oh my god! Like I was reading the script, and I was in every single scene. I was not dying in the second scene, and I was not a drug dealer, and I was not a prostitute, and I was not, um, you know, crossing. I, I do cross the border, but I was like, yeah, I'm not. I was not an immigrant looking for, you know, like work in the states. And I was like, this is amazing. You know, this 
this movie is actually relevant and is important. And I think it's great that James Cameron, he's always been a visionary and, and you know, he's always been open. And and Sarah Connor was the first, you know, film female action hero of all times. And, you know, he's always been great about that. But this is huge. You know, this is making Latina the main character of a Hollywood movie and, and being the hero. So... You know, I think this is just showing the change and, and that we also need to change in our minds that, you know, that set up of, you know, not being uh, capable or, or, you know, like. Just. Talk to me psychologically about that moment that ruptured between me being less than and me being equal to. Um, when did that moment come for you on set? Yeah, I mean, you you said something about that scene of, you know, being with Mackenzie and Linda and Arnold in the same scene. And, you know, like, uh, you know, we were shooting for six months, so we were all equals. And I think that's also great about Tim Miller, our director. Uh, he's great at that. I mean, he, he's not because I'm a Latina. It's just like in on set, you know, we were all the same. We were all people we were creating a movie. We were all trying to to tell a story, but they were not like stars or, or, you know, more important people or, you know, like we were all the same and everyone was working hard and, you know, that, that's great about him, you know, starting from him. He's humble. He's human. He's barefoot all the time on set. <laughs> so, you know, actually he, he is. Um, so, you know, it's, it's, it's great to have a director that it, that also, you know, approaches like this, uh, movie like that, but, but also, you know, being on that scene with Arnold and Linda and not only sharing a scene with them and being equal, just like actually telling them, you know, like, Okay, now I'm in charge, and you are going to make what I say. So that was like this is crazy, you know. It was a really surreal moment, but it it was real, and it is real, and it's happening, and that's what I think we we should all you know like feel proud of what we are and what we are capable of. For people that have watched the Terminator franchise for so long, they're not used to an international cast per se, you know, and this is the first time that you do have like a real international cast for the Terminator franchise. I mean, Mackenzie Davis is Canadian. Canadian. Um, Diego Boneta is Mexican. You're well, Colombian. Arnold is Austrian. <laughs> Arnold is Austrian. Exactly. And then you have, mm-hmm. um, uh, Gabriel Luna, who's from Austin here in the United States. So you have like this great, nice, uh, cast of, of global stars, but in essence, the backdrop is in Mexico. The movie opens spoken in Spanish, which is crazy. Um, the yeah. lead is Latinx in you. The main Terminator villain in this movie is Latino. It's insane to me. I kept on telling everybody, it's like, guys, this is a Latinx movie. It just happens to be yeah. a Terminator movie. Explain to explain to us why there's a Latinx theme in, in, in this new Terminator franchise. Well, actually, you know, if, if if they're fans of like the original saga, they, they there was always. I mean, I think that's great about James Cameron. He's always being. He's always created these universes, and I think back then, like there was always a strong connection um, 
of Terminator with Mexico. You know, Sarah was always like escaping to Mexico and she was kind of speaking Spanish and it was the Asperlista baby. And there was always a connection with Latin America and Mexico. I mean, seeing the movie and it, it, there has always been a really, you know, like like woman-centered story. It was Sarah Connor. So, you know, I think it's been in the franchise, but this time it's like it's big time because it's 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 how the world is now. You know, it's a reflection of how it is outside. So I think that's great. And um it it, it is, you know, a Latinx movie. It is, you know, we have this Mexico we start in Spanish, we start in Mexico City, you have all these, you know, Mexican flavors and colors and you can absolutely feel the Latinx soul you know, in the movie. So, so you know, I, I think it's, it's great. And that's one of the things, you know, you all enjoy, not right. only Latinos. You know, I think you all go and see a movie where, you know, it's full of uh, diversity. It's not only about, as you said, Latinos. Like, Arnold is from Austria and Mackenzie is from Canada. We shot this movie between Budapest and Spain. And, you know, we had people from all around the world working in, on, on this movie. So it's just like about that, you know, like, Let's stop, you know, to the building borders and walls right. and just understand that we're all one and we, we should just like start building bridges. As a Colombian actress, did you have to work on your diction to sound as authentically Mexican as possible for for the film? And was there any backlash from the Mexican community of not hiring a Mexican to do a Mexican role? Yeah, I mean, I think... Um, of course, I'm Colombian and, you know, I'm proud of being Colombian. But I think what you said, like, I'm mostly proud right now in my position of being a Latina because I don't think I only represent, you know, the family where I came from or or the city where I was born or the country where, you know, like, I think is like what it's bigger here and what is more important. It's, you know, like that Latino representation. I do feel like Mexico is my second home, you know, like I love Mexico and Mexico is absolutely important in my life. You know, I have so many friends. I've lived there. I've worked in Mexico. I have so many Mexican friends in Colombia and working in Colombia. I think there, I haven't, like, I haven't really felt that at all, you know, until now. Like I, I think, I've, you know, I've worked in Mexico and they know, you know, my work there. And I think they, you know, there's no competition and it, and it would be, for me, you know, actually silly to, you know, start that debate when we're, you know, when we are all fighting for the same reason, you know, like we all want Latino representation and, you know, the why, like, for example, you know, like why they show, they, they chose me, like, you know, it was a really intense, long process and they were looking for, you know, this a specific character and they found it um, in me. And, you know, I was, I was proud and I think that's, my challenge as an actress, like I just did this movie, Birds of Passage, when I was uh, portraying this indigenous woman from the Wayu community. And that's my job. Like I went to La Guajira in Colombia. I went to learn Wayu Nike. I spoke Wayu Nike and I did my best to, you know, like being respectful uh, with the community. So that's exactly what you do as an actor when you're a serious actor. Uh, you prepare yourself. And I have so many friends. I mean, I've lived in Mexico for long. And, you know, we all, like as an actor, if you want to work along Latin America, you always have to work on your accent. Because, you know, you know, if you're from Mexico, it's different from being from Colombia or from Medellin or being a Costeño or being an Argentine. You know, I think it's, it's part of our jobs. And I, of course, did my best and I had 
a coach, but you know, like he was not hard for me because I've lived there and I've worked there and I, I've worked in my accent. And I, I do feel proud, you know, portraying a Mexican. And I don't feel, you know, I'm stealing anything from anyone. I think we're, we're all united on this. Well, Natalia Reyes, thank you so much for being on the Highly Relevant Podcast. Uh, wish you the best of luck. Uh, if this is the way to come into Hollywood, I can only imagine what the future holds for you. So, uh, viva Colombia. Mm-hmm. Uh, congratulations on Terminator Dark Fate. And I wish you the best of luck in your career. Thank you. Bye. And before I chat with Ed Morales, here are three Latin tracks you might want to add to your playlist this weekend. Lo mejor de mí, Noel Charis. Bonito, Marco Mares, Greta. El Basile, Sistema Solar. I'd like to welcome to the show now Ed Morales. He is an author, journalist, filmmaker, poet, and probably the ultimate authority in Latinx at the moment. He's a teacher at Columbia University. He's also the author of many books about the Latinx experience, including The Latin Beat, Living in Spanglish, Latinx, The New Force in American Politics and Culture, and Fantasy Island, Colonialism, Exploitation, and the Betrayal of Puerto Rico, which was recently published. He has written for The Village Voice, Nation, New York Times, Rolling Stone, and other publications, and is a regular commentator on NPR. I welcome to the Highly Relevant Podcast, Ed Morales. How are you, man? Oh, thank you for having me, Jack. First of all, it's a pleasure to speak with you. Um, And before we talk a little bit of Latinx and pop culture, um, I wanted to tell you a a story of how you came into my social consciousness. I was reading uh, the New York Times about a review of your book, Latinx. Right. And (laughs) when I was reading it, it happens to be a review from none other than a current presidential candidate in Julian Castro, who happens to be Latinx. Right. So it automatically caught my attention because a presidential candidate doing a a review of a book on the New York Times, that's interesting. (laughs) So I read it and I was like, I need to know more about Ed Morales. So I started researching and caught several podcast interviews that you've done. And what stood out to me was the academic approach you had to talking about this subject matter. Tell me about why you wanted to get into writing about Latinx in your life. You know, the book is really based on uh, this seminar that I teach at Columbia um, about uh, the basically the history and culture of U.S. Latinos. And uh, the, my approach has always been um, about how Latinos or Latinx people have uh, a really a big, uh, uh, a very racial identity. Um, and so that's the way I always approached, uh, 
my work as a journalist because I was a journalist and I still am uh, to an extent. You know, when I interviewed uh, subjects, people who were Latino or from Latin American background, they often talked about having uh, various uh, people from different racial types in their own families uh, identifying with different um, racial identities. And, uh, you know, the, here in the United States, the uh, racial debate is usually about black and white. You know, some people call that a, a binary um, way of thinking. If you look at the dynamics that happened at the Oscars, at the Academy mm-hmm. Awards, when Chris Rock was hosting, yeah. and remember that whole uh, cultural um, Oscar so white that had come right. to be the Oscars at that moment, Yet mm-hmm. when he was talking about race and culture, we weren't even mentioned, even though George Clooney just weeks before had said that the people who have it worse in the Hollywood business are the Hispanics. Um, you know, you can argue about Hispanics and Asians. I mean, that's another debate as well. But uh, yeah, I mean, uh, part of the reason is actually when I want to uh, loop in uh, Asians here, that both uh, Latinos and Asians um don't get as much play in entertainment is uh, because they don't fit into, you know, the normal uh, white, white or black, uh, you know, the view of race as being white or black. So, uh, you know, uh, having these varied identities uh, allows Latinos uh, to, um, you know, participate in society uh, in different ways to an extent, uh, have uh, uh, an integrated, uh, cultural experience with uh, different kinds of uh, identities and and not be uh, tied to this way of viewing the world. So the thing about Latinx is that, uh, you know, I hadn't originally uh, chosen it as a title, but my students have been using it more and more to talk about not wanting to uh, consider it in 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 the binary that we view sexual identity, right? Like male or female, there's a lot of non-binary identification going on now. Um, sex preference, sort of being uh, between straight or gay. And uh, I saw it like this natural uh, evolution in the way that uh, Latinos are in the U.S. to um, to, to sort of uh, be oriented in that way. And uh, I'm actually kind of proud that uh, the at least the debate over Latinx is a use. I mean, a lot of uh, people are adopting it. A lot of professional and academic uh, organizations are. Um, and it's with the first uh, ethnic or racial group that is at least in discussion. And many people are adopting this term, which acknowledges uh, these new identities of not identifying uh, with the gender binary. Mm-hmm. So I saw a parallel between how we don't fit into the black white thing and yeah. the way uh, younger people uh, are questioning um, the categories of male and female or straight or gay. Mm-hmm. That's why I basically uh, um, got excited about the term, and I think it expresses a way to really uh, get out of these camps that we're in, you know, in terms of uh, politics and uh, and and race. Although, but there's a lot of pushback, as you know, you know, you mentioned it um, from some people who feel that uh, the word. Uh, is not a Spanish word and, and uh, feel that it's some kind of uh, gringo position on our identity. <laughs> I haven't and heard that one yet. <laughs> right. And then there's some, a lot of people who uh, prefer to identify as African 
uh, or indigenous um, descended and feels that the Latinx uh, label does not include them, um, which I think is really uh, up for debate. You know, I think that Latino for a long time has been used uh, to sort of flatten identities out and, and sort of uh, um, obscure the details of what we are as, as Puerto Ricans, Dominicans, Colombians, Mexicans. Um, but I think it's important for Latinos to really shore up their own sense of their individual country identities, but at the same time find ways to um, to create uh, political and cultural power by making alliances uh, between different Latino groups. And that's right. what the, the term does, Latinx or, or even just Latino. So is your focus, Ed, strictly on the U.S. Latino experience or does it include Latin America as well in its history? Well, yeah, I mean, uh, the book talks, goes all the way back to Spain, you know, and explains how uh, in the, between 700 and 1500, uh, Spain was a, where a place where the three major religions were all coexisting, you know, uh, Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. And that kind of three-sided model of uh, different constituencies was transferred to uh, Latin America when the Spanish, who had then uh, thrown out all of the, the Jews and the Muslims from Spain, uh, went into Latin America, and then they encountered two new groups and sort of arranged them in the same triangular model. But, you know, unfortunately, that was a hierarchical model mm-hmm. um, in which the Spanish were dominant. You know, in, in Spain, the, the Christians became dominant. And uh, so my idea is that by when, when Latinos migrate to the U.S., they have the opportunity to to break with that model and allow, uh, you know, non-European identities to gain more prominence. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what Latinos should be doing in the United States. They should be celebrating their indigenous and African uh, identities to the extent that they feel or understand them. Uh, you know, many Latinos are also Asian, too. There's a great deal of Asian migration mm-hmm. to Latin America in the 19th and 20th centuries. So I think it should be a celebration of all those things and and not, you know, uh, retaining that European uh, dominance in our identity. Can Spaniards opt in to be Latinx in America? We recently had a yeah. debate about this um, on our previous episode mm-hmm. with Rosalia, who's yeah. from Barcelona and sings yeah. flamenco reggaeton or urban music, Latino urban music. But she got the award for best Latin acts or Latin uh, music award at the MTVs and now is a part of the Latin Grammys and was the most nominated over the kings of reggaeton. And so I think that yeah. that kind of uh, brushed some artists the wrong way and it kind of really started sparking this conversation uh, about whether Spaniards are white Europeans who speak Spanish or if once they're in America, they completely meld with the major Hispanic population with Mexicans and, and, and Latinos in general. Yeah, it's a super complicated issue. Uh, I think it really depends on uh, the individual and what they really try to do themselves in terms, to, in terms of uh, relating to uh, Latino identity. Um, I think that Rosalia probably could have helped herself by making a strong statement of understanding the history of uh, colonialism and 
um, the fact that uh, she was becoming involved with the music that um, is is not part of Europe. But on the other hand, I think we have to understand that I think there's a, a distorted picture of, of Spain that we have now, assuming that everyone there is a, a white European and when, when it's actually uh, also a kind of a mixed society, even though um, whiteness is has uh, predominance there. But, uh, you know, there are many people, especially in the south of Spain, that uh, come from that mix of uh, Spaniards and uh and Moors, and uh, and also many as a large uh, Hitano population, mm-hmm. uh, the Romani people, and actually it's that Hitano culture which is the one that developed flamenco that uh, that Rosalia is such a master of. Yeah. and I actually have read some uh, academic uh, articles that suggest that there was a uh, African presence in Spain in the 16th and through the 18th centuries mm. where, you know, a lot of Spaniard, uh, you know, they shipped the, the, Spain, the slaves through Sevilla. And some of those people stayed in places like Andalusia and they had an influence on the development of flamenco music. So, so is African way, flamenco music or is flamenco music well, African? It's mostly uh, Gitano. You know, the Romani culture, what people yeah, use the word gypsy, which is, you know, look, not a good term to use because it's insulting. But a mm. lot of people recognize the use of the, the term gypsy. But it's mostly that culture. You know, those people were from uh, South Asia. I mean, they were from India originally. Hmm. But, uh, yeah, it's mostly that culture. But there was uh, there there was, according to these historians, some interaction between the African people that were in Spain um, centuries ago, that uh, also there were these dances that developed in Spain, like the Sarabanda, which were um, precursors to the kind of music and dancing that you see um, developing in Cuba in the 18th and 19th century. So there is a tie, although I wouldn't say that it's a purely at all a purely African music. I would say it's a fusion music. Um, of of certain Arabic traditions, certain Spanish traditions, and uh, Hitano traditions, you know, with some uh, African influence. So mm-hmm. in that way, I see Rosalia as being kind of a Latina artist because she's using the same kind of fusion mechanisms that created Latin American music. But she could have made it more clear. She should make a statement making it clear that she understands these things. As far as Spaniards living in the U.S., you know, I remember uh, a while ago, uh, I went to a wedding in Queens of these uh, two people who grew up in Queens and their roots were uh, from Spain. Uh And they invited many people that many of most of their friends were Latinos. And, you know, and and we played uh, salsa music. We played, uh, you know, uh, the dance music at the time and merengue and everything. And they were all into it. And they, they wanted to be considered Latinos. And again, you know, it's the assimilation uh, you process. Have the feeling and the flavor, you know. Yeah. And you know, uh, <laughs> I don't see anything against it. And also, I didn't see them as you know, particularly white identifying or anything like that. So, I think that people should be more open and not give uh, Spain or Spaniards a, a blanket definition. Hmm. Even though right now we're seeing a lot of negativity in Spain with the way that uh, the. Uh, Government is repressing the uh, uh, Catalan independence movement, and there is, you know, I think that European supremacy is still operative 
in Spain. But, you know, as we know, look, if we're going to look at the U.S., do, do we want everyone to think that everyone is like Trump? I mean, you know, right now Trump is representing the U.S. abroad. And I don't think that people believe that all Americans are a reflection of Trump. I wanted to talk to you about a particular topic that happened not too long ago. Gina Rodriguez recently said the N-word and received backlash on social media from the African-American community, mm-hmm. saying that she was not allowed to say the N-word. But then you speak to several African-Americans, and one of them being Sean Stockman from Boys to Men, mm-hmm. and he says that Puerto Ricans are black. Uh, I'm not so sure all Puerto Ricans identify as black, but then you have Pras from the Fugees, which is the song that Gina mm-hmm. said the N-word to, And he said that blacks get to choose who says it and who doesn't. So that brought me a little confusion. And I wanted to ask you, can Latinx with the black background, can they say the N-word? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I think that, you know, what we're talking about here is, well, first of all, you know, Gina Rodriguez uh, had sparked controversy in the past because she... Um, complained uh, that uh, Hispanic or Latina actresses did not get paid as much as African-American actresses. And I think that that um, is going down the wrong road because I don't think we should be getting into arguments about who is suffering more because that's just a divisive tool. Mm. I think that uh, people should find ways to to not backstab at other uh, people of color groups, you know, uh, and try to think of solidarity. Um, So I think that left her open to a lot of criticism. Um, As far as like when people say, yes, I agree with you that a lot of people, if you go on the street, I mean, I can still see Latino kids on the street, you know, using the word, talking to their amongst themselves, talking to um, other black people. Um, and I think that basically it's the code of the street, you know, it's the code you, of the street. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> That's it. If you are on the block and people know you, you know, yeah. Um, it's when you're not a part of the street, level. right? It's when right. you're not a part of the street and maybe right. you become a celebrity like Gina. Uh-huh. And, uh, I felt that she's like street code says, I can say this. That's that's possible. You know, I don't I maybe, you know, her better than I do. And I don't really want to judge her. But I do think that she left herself over for criticism with those previous comments. And also, I think that right now, um, I do think that there's a difference between what you say on the street and uh, what you're saying uh, in public and in the position that you have. And, and I think people should be careful with it because it is a word that uh, is extremely uh, controversial, you know, and in many ways, Latinx people did not share the experience uh, most of the time uh, of slavery and Jim Crow, which is where that word comes out of, you know, the response to that um, in the long run. And uh, I think that that's part of the whole uh, uh, thing that has to be negotiated between Latinx people and African-Americans of not having gone through exactly the same experience, even though many Latinx people may be Afro-Latinx and are descended from slaves from Latin America. Um, but it's a, it's a different story. It's, it's always a different story, and it's a very painful story, and that's why people have to be careful about it. I wanted to ask you about this current trend where America has become completely aware of the Spanish language when it comes to music. 
So the American mainstream right now is embracing reggaeton at a, a in a way that that I have never seen it um, with Latin artists. And a lot of these Latin artists, their whole mission almost, their whole mantra was, let's not sing in English, let's just sing in Spanish, be ourselves. And if we do this in the you know for the long term, we will eventually you know break that glass and be able to be part of the American mainstream singing in Spanish. Now, we've seen a lot of this. Despacito was definitely a um, a gateway into that, even though I feel that a lot of its success, the record-breaking success, was the mixture of Justin Bieber singing in English as mm-hmm. well with the Spanish. Sure. It's like no Spanish-language tune sung strictly in Spanish has been number one for 17 weeks in the, in the Billboard chart. So... Can we sustain Spanish language entertainment in the mainstream, or do you think this is a fad? Um, you know, well, you know, one of the classes I teach at Columbia is uh, called Latin Music and Identity, and we talk a lot about these different stages that Latin music had. You know, if you go back uh, 50 years, I know it's a long time, or more, um, you had uh, the mambo music that was very popular, and it was mainstream because uh, mainstream Americans were much more into dancing um, and they really got into the Latin dances, uh, which you know were an evolution from those other dances they did to jazz music way back in the 40s and 50s. So the music was really accepted at that time, even though the lyrics were in Spanish. Uh, you know, it, it kind of uh, worked together with uh, Americans' predisposition that... Uh, the Spanish language and Latin music was sexy, you know, so they got into it in that way. And I think a similar thing um, happened with uh, Despacito. I think you're right that Justin Bieber uh, gave it a lot of uh, push. But, you know, I think that uh, it's it's always been tough, you know, um, for Latin music to to cross over. I think most of it has to do with the the rhythms and the energy but I think there's always a potential for people to pick up certain phrases, to be able to sing along with certain choruses, to understand certain songs like, say, Gasolina was something that really broke through for But Ed, but don't you think that this is more about the gatekeepers who, yeah, who, well, who are sure. willing yeah, well. to allow uh-huh. Spanish language yeah. to be uh, mm-hmm. in vogue? Because for me, mm-hmm. when Despacito sure. broke all those records, MTV still didn't even nominate it. At yeah. their awards, and that was—I mean, I had a—I had a conversation with one of the reporters, the music director over at the Associated Press, about that. Yeah. How insulting is that, and what does that say about uh, the complete suppression of our culture through our achievements that go beyond our own language and our own culture into a mm-hmm. global phenomenon like it is, and still not recognize yeah. it? Why the resistance to our language and why the resistance to our culture for mainstream? Yeah. Well, that's like a big, uh, that's a big question. You know, I was talking to somebody the other day that really the Americas and the Americas, uh, a lot of a history that we don't talk about is this real rivalry between uh, English language culture and Spanish language culture, because uh, these two huge empires that happened that created that colonization. And uh, if you go way back, you know, in the 19th century, the, the British put out all these pamphlets, you know, trying to say that the, uh, Spain had, uh, they did, you know, they, they, uh, they committed all these atrocities during the conquest of the new world. But, you know, I mean, the, the British did, uh, I mean, or at least the American descendants uh, were right up there with them. 
But uh, the, the, I feel, you know, one of the things I can tell you as well is having been a longtime music critic, you know, I used to write for the Village Voice uh, music section. As you mentioned, I wrote for Rolling Stone. Really a lot of resistance among the editors because America is not only in that rivalry with the Spanish language culture, but also tends not to be multilingual, you know, tends to be monolingual. And there's, there's kind of a prejudice against any foreign language. And uh, it's just not considered. And if you, actually, if you keep looking at the New York Times, every time they have like these, these are the hot new songs of the week, mm-hmm. you know, they almost never mention uh, Latino artists or these are the, the albums for the fall that you should be looking at. They almost never mention um, Latino groups. And I had a very difficult time, um, you know, uh, proposing and actually publishing stories about Latin music. So yeah, there's a tremendous And what uh, was your thought on that? Why do you think they were they were they were dismissing that? I think that they just think that their audience um is not it's it's a specialized audience that likes Latin music. And that's, you know, there was a huge acceptance of uh of hip hop. Um but I think that um most of that is because hip hop is in English even though it's in this you know, a counterculture of urban, you know, African-American culture that is sort of opposed to mainstream culture, but it's in English. And so um, that made it uh, relevant as being American. And so anything that's in a different language sort of makes it exterior to what they think their audience is interested in. I, I, for example, consider myself to be a bilingual journalist. Uh, that works in both markets. And I can tell you that every time that I am in an English language circle and I'm trying to propose Latinx stories, there's an immediate, like, either rolling of the eye, uh, which I find offensive, man, and, I, and, and mm-hmm. it gets me really angry. Uh, <laughs> but at the same, But at the same time... I'm sick of educating people left and right. They don't pick up books. They don't want to know about what's going on in our culture. And there's right. what what's become of it has been the segregation within our own country, within the media platforms. Why does right. Univision and Telemundo exist? It's because we're not heard in the mainstream. So we got to go and create our own Latino mainstream, right? right. But it's gotten to a point yeah. now, Ed, that... Univision and Telemundo no longer speak to anyone else outside of themselves. And mm. there's no growth there. You'll never scale up. You'll never include other cultures into your programming or anything if you don't do something about it. And it kind right. of brings up this point of, and, and the question is, do you believe that in America there is a rivalry, an unspoken rivalry between Latin Americans and U.S. Latinos? Uh, oh, yeah. Well, I mean, I don't know if it's a rivalry, but it's definitely there's a, a difference in interests. Uh, the manifestation of Latin Americans in the U.S., you know, tends to reinforce the negative things that we think about um, with Latin American culture, like uh, machismo and, uh, uh, you know, the, own, the, the peculiar racism that exists in, in Latin America. And so I think that... Uh, that is what the promises of Latinx culture is to uh, learn from the experience of the civil rights movement in the U.S. and uh, and also the women's movement uh, and make that into combine it with uh, what we have as Latin Americans and, and make a, a whole new uh, culture out of that. So 
you know, the thing is, too, with the Univision and Telemundo, you know, a lot of them do really great work. But the, the problem is, is that, you know, all the studies show that uh, by the second generation, um, Latinos become English dominant. And so their audience is always just going to be recent uh, first generation or recent immigrants. And so um, it's it doesn't really take into account the full scope of the Latino experience. You're absolutely right. Absolutely right. I think they choose the Spanish language uh, because maybe the people that are in charge are not Latinx and don't understand the U.S. Latino experience. Yeah. And it's affecting them. I mean, the decline in sales in Spanish language print media, uh, the decline in ratings from televisions, radio stations, uh, Spanish language just seems to be disappearing, but there's this... uh, there's a protest that's happening for us not to lose that. And I understand that we need to have the balance between Spanish and English in this country, but with more U.S. Latinos wanting to speak English and wanting to assimilate into either a black hip-hop culture where Spanish is not spoken and a white America that offers you power uh, and, Mm -hmm. and, and an incredible American lifestyle, the American dream... You kind of look at your own culture and language as an afterthought or like a second class citizen. Mm-hmm. As a Latinx in this country, what should our view of ourselves be? Um, well, you know, I think that the strength, and that's what I kind of write about in my book, Latinx, the, the strength of our culture is just the continuing um interaction that we can have with the different cultures and absorbing them and making that uh, a a kind of a pluralistic hybrid multicultural way of 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 doing things you know uh of being in the world you know um there's no problem you know actually we you know many of us are very comfortable obviously speaking in english speaking in different ways you know speaking with a spanish accent speaking perfect english speaking uh, you know, urban, uh, uh, African-American urban uh, vernacular. So all of those things uh, should be fine, you know, and I think that uh, it reflects, you know, the best of what's happening in the United States is uh, a lot of different uh, cultures uh, coming together. Uh, I think that it's important to to try to make an attempt to retain the Spanish language and to be bilingual. Because it's not just about a loyalty to the Spanish language or the culture, but to continually challenge yourself to think through things uh, in, in different perspectives. Mm. Um, and uh, because, you know, they did in my book, I talk about how in the New York Times, they did a study about uh, bilingual children. And what they were doing is they were constantly uh, translating. And they were, and by doing that, they were constantly putting themselves in in different positions. And I think it, it creates like a more vibrant um, active culture that allows you to interact with uh, more different kinds of people and not be stuck on one side or another. You have a new book that came out in September called Fantasy Island, Colonialism, Exploitation and the Betrayal of Puerto Rico. And I wanted to get your thoughts on what you think about the island today in terms uh, politically, uh, where it's headed to, and the differences between the Puerto Rican and the New Yorican uh, to, for example, a white man or a black man, what are, are there differences that they particularly see? 
Yeah, um, you know, the differences between Puerto Ricans and Eurekans, um, that really happens like with most Latino cultures. Uh, when people are here for a while, uh, they develop a different kind of culture that's a fusion between their home country culture and the U.S., and they speak a lot more English. And then when they go back to their home country, you know, uh, in, in Fantasy Island, I talk mostly about Puerto Rico. Um, they get accused of being in a gringo or something like that. And, and you left or your family left. So you're not part of us anymore. So that is a, it's a very important dynamic that a lot of my students talk about. Um, with Puerto Ricans and New Ricans, it can be even more intense because Puerto Rico has been a colony for 500 years and it was a Spanish colony first. And uh, there's a really strong feeling of nationalism there. So by speaking English, uh, people on the island a lot of times feel like it's some kind of betrayal. Um, on the other hand, I do think that um, Puerto Ricans in New York, uh, New Yorkans uh, don't, many of them don't uh, keep in touch enough about what's going on in Puerto Rico. But that has really changed because of all the political um, controversies surrounding uh, the response. There's been a unification going on, right? Yeah. Yeah. So that's, I think, a positive development. I think right now, I could have told you five years ago, ask a typical New Yorker who's the mayor of San Juan and no one would be able to say, but now. Rosselló. Rosselló. Yeah. <laughs> Everybody knows, knows that, that name now. So, yeah. So I do think it's a moment where there's uh, there's more uh, unity between, uh, but there's always controversy. There's always accusations of being an outsider. Um, and so I think both sides need to work a, a little bit you know puerto ricans on the island need to be uh, less dismissive of uh of new ricans and new ricans uh should be a little more open to um getting touched a little more with spanish and and understanding that um the island is you know an incredible place with all this history that they should know more about so what is Fantasy Island about and why did you decide to invest so much time in researching the subject matter? Well, you know, the book uh, comes out of uh, many years that I've been writing about Puerto Rico, you know, and the, it's mostly about the debt crisis and how, you know, that accumulated and has put the island in a very difficult position. And I have been writing about that for a number of years for publications like uh, The Nation. I wrote a lot for The Guardian and some other places. And so I have been, uh, I've been writing about it for a while and I decided to put together a, a book proposal. And then, I mean, unfortunately what happened, I mean, it was fortunate for me, but a, a very sad thing to happen was that uh, I put the book out on the market with an agent and there wasn't a lot of interest. And this happened to be like about a month before the hurricane. And then when the hurricane hit, <laughs> I got an incredible amount of interest. <laughs> So <laughs> timing so, uh, is everything, right? Yeah. You know, the book is really about the, the, the reason it's called fantasy Island is because um, I think that Puerto Ricans have been in a kind of a fantasy about how they were not really a colony and they were this part of the United we're States. We're not really and, Americans, right? Yeah. We're not re yeah. And I, and the, the debt crisis, you know, which put in this uh, oversight board, which is, unelected and is controlling a lot of the economic decisions about Puerto Rico and the lack of, and the terrible, uh, you know, response from the U S government in terms of aid, um, that Trump keeps lying about has, has broken this fantasy and, and, and mm. caused Puerto Ricans to wake up 
out of this uh, this fantasy dream and realize that, uh, you know, we're really strongly discriminated against. We're in a very precarious economic situation and we have to create a new kind of politics. And that's essentially what happened with the movement in the summer, you know, where they removed uh, Ricky Rosario. Yeah, they reached the tipping point. Yeah, you know, I like to talk about that as uh, it's a new kind of nationalism. You know, the nationalism of the past had become kind of out of date, you know, uh, the, the Nationalist Party, not many people remember Pedro Albizu Campos. A lot of the leaders from the 60s and 70s were not as relevant as they used to be. And so the, I think the participation of, of the women and the LGBTQ groups um, and the new stars, you know, like uh, people like Bad Bunny and Residente and, you know, friend Ricky Martin, um, kind of uh, was really important in creating this new kind of national pride that, uh, you know, was more inclusive of different parts of the community and uh, and appeal to uh, young people, you know, and it's that whole millennial thing of not having economic security that has made millennials more politically active. What is it that you want readers to take away from Fantasy Island? Well, I want them to take away, you know, that there's a, a long, deep history that, you know, the, U- the U.S. has really been involved in shaping our fate. You know, my own family came to uh, New York as a result of these uh, economic uh, restructuring plans that happened in Puerto Rico in the 1940s and 50s. We're all uh, connected to that history. Um, uh, most of it has been, um, you know, exploitative. I, I do have some things about the U.S. presence in Puerto Rico that uh, had some positive results, like uh, allowing people to unionize and allowing uh, people to be influenced by the civil rights and the women's movements. Um, but uh, that we should understand that, uh, you know, that there's there's a lot of work to do and that we have uh, there's been a lot of the history that has been hidden from us because they don't teach it in schools and they don't put it in the newspapers. You know, this whole uh, debt crisis. Um, you could only read about it in the Wall Street Journal and, and Bloomberg News, and it was all written entirely from the point of view of the bond investors, and it didn't really talk about um, what the effect would be on the people of Puerto Rico. So there's very few real serious books out there about Puerto Rico. So actually, I'm really happy that I had the opportunity to do it. And uh, it's been translated into Spanish, and I'm I'm actually going to someone in mid-November uh, with the Spanish language version and doing a few events around that. Your book, Latinx, uh, The New Force in American Politics and Culture, uh, has been shortlisted for a prize uh, by the British Academy. And you're heading out there to London next week. Tell me about how you feel about that and the importance about our uh, this new American-created uh, term, uh, finding the Brits' uh, interest in there. Well, you know, I was uh, very unhappy and surprised that um, I was shortlisted for this prize. It's a prize for global cultural understanding. And uh, I think that they were uh, interested in in the book as something that gave more understanding uh, about what a different kind of identity that's based on different ideas about race Um how that affected a, a huge group of people, you know, all of us uh, Latinx people in the United States, and to an extent, the, the culture that we come from, the cultures of Latin America, and how that kind of had roots in uh, what happened in Spain, going all the way back to the 14th and 15th centuries, and 
how Spain interacted uh, with the rest of the world, uh, particularly uh, most most notably North Africa and the Middle East, um, and had, how that had to do with world history. So, I think that's one of the reasons why European Academy was interested in it. Um, and uh, you know, I'm I'm really there's there's a book about uh, China. There's a book about uh, the history of teaching philosophy in the world. There's another author, uh, Kwame Anthony Apaya, who has a column in the New York Times, who writes also about, um, you know, different kinds of multiple identities. So I was really excited to be uh, nominated with that. Um, it's like really prestigious to to go to to Europe, you know, and be nominated. And we're going to be on this panel when they present the prize that night in which we're going to have this discussion. And so. You know, like, uh, I don't really see myself as, you know, one of these uh, fancy academic types. You know, I just got involved with it for a while. Um, um, I, I think it's part of my own identity <laughs> being, uh, you know, mixed as well. You know, I, I've been a poet. I've been a filmmaker. You know, I play basketball. You know, <laughs> I'm just a regular guy from New York City. Yeah, you're um, a New Yorker. So, uh, <laughs> so uh, I, I'm, you know, I'm super uh, happy about it. I just hope it brings more attention. I hope that somebody decides to publish Latinx into Spanish as a result of it. You can read Ed Morales' books, Latinx, The New Force in American Politics and Culture, as well as his most recent project, Fantasy Island, Colonialism, Exploitation, and the Betrayal of Puerto Rico. Ed Morales, thank you so much for being on the show. Thanks again for having me on your podcast. And that's it for episode 130 of the Highly Relevant Podcast. I want to thank Natalia Reyes and Ed Morales for dropping by. And if you'd like to support this podcast, please spread the love on social media and tell all your friends about it. You can reach me on Instagram at Jack Rico and my Facebook page at Jack Rico 40. Remember, it's only through your support that our show can grow. I'm Jack Rico. See you next week on another episode of Highly Relevant. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. The legends are true. But overwhelming power. The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Donald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last.